So I want to own, can you hear me? This is the first time I've used this mic, so I'm a little skeptical. Up, up. Oh, it's good. Okay, great. Great. Hmm. So here you are. You have now completed 48 hours of retreat. Last night I chuckled a little when Bob congratulated you, but actually I think you are to be congratulated because it's huge what you're doing. It's a really big deal. And, you know, sometimes I encounter people, probably some of you are among them, who are so terrified at the thought of even a day of silence, let alone a week. And um, to come and be here with the heart and the mind and the body takes a great deal of courage. It takes a lot of patience because what you're doing is not easy. It's really not easy at all. One of the images in the Tibetan literature about Um, training the mind, the image for the heart and mind is of the rocky, frozen Himalayan soil. So you can imagine what it might be to um, do anything in that rocky, frozen soil. It's pretty hard. And often, and I heard this a lot today from people in interviews, there's a way in which you can feel pretty lost in a retreat, you know, it's, it's for some of you, it's very new. And even if you've been to retreats before, sometimes it feels like, wait a minute, I thought I'd been to retreats before, but what is this? I don't know about this kind of retreat. You don't really know about that kind of retreat. So here's a poem. It's one of my favorites. It's from David Wagoner, and it's called Lost. He says, stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush is lost on you does is, excuse me, if what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. And I thought, here at the retreat, we could rewrite that poem. We could say, stand still. The retreat knows where you are. You must let it find you. Maybe I could just stop right there. We don't need any more talk other than that. Just let, let the retreat find you. Listen to the instructions. Do what you're told to do. Relax. And let it carry you. Let the retreat... You're not doing the retreat. The retreat is doing you, really. 
So tonight, we're going to talk some about what it is to train the mind and the heart. That what it is to take that frozen and rocky soil that we talked about a minute ago and to cultivate it, to turn it into a garden. We've been focused a lot here at this retreat and we will continue to be on the body and on that foundation of mindfulness. But by now, I'm sure you've all noticed how incredibly connected the mind and the heart are to the body. So here's the beginning of a story. About seven years ago, um, my husband and I acquired um, a piece of land with a home on it on the big island of Hawaii. And we have mm, two-thirds of an acre, it's not a lot of land, and a little house in the rainforest in Volcano Village. And when we bought that land seven years ago, it was overrun with a plant which is very invasive in that part of Hawaii, which is kahili ginger. It's a beautiful plant. Some of you may even have it in your gardens as an ornamental plant. It can grow to be six or eight feet tall, big leaves, stalks of these wonderful, fragrant yellow flowers. It's not the kind of ginger that's edible. That's a little too bad. We could have at least eaten it. Um, And it looks lovely, but it also takes over everything. And it had completely filled in our little piece of forest. And it completely screened our house from everything, including our own land. Our house sitter loved it. She was a really private person. So she thought this was great, you know, having this screen, this impenetrable screen between the house and everything. So for a while, because, you know, we were new homeowners and we were new to the island, we let it be there. But, you know, Hawaii has a lot of interesting plants and the forest was filled with them and as we began to talk to people, we began to be educated about our land. And we learned that, in fact, on this particular piece of land, we had a lot of native and endemic species living there underneath the ginger. So what to do? And some people said, poison it, you know, get the nastiest Roundup or whatever. It was worse than Roundup and kill it. But, you know, that's not very ecological. And other people said, oh, what you have to do is you have to dig it out and it will take you years because it's such a huge project and the roots are so big and they're so deep in and all of that. (coughs) And then someone suggested that what we could do is chop it down. And that (coughs) this person was trained in permaculture and she said, you know, if if you keep chopping it down in the end, it will give up. So that sounded like pretty much the easiest idea. So we began. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) So here at the retreat, we've also begun a process. I think I'm just going to be a little gravelly to to Lula Bankhead or something tonight. And you've begun a training. And the first night, when we came here, if you remember, we took refuge. And you took refuge in the Buddha, in that which is awake. You took refuge in the Dharma, that which is true. 
and you took refuge in the Sangha, in the community of those who are awakened or who are trying to wake up. And if you remember, we suggested that refuge in the Buddha isn't just in the historical Buddha, but it's in your own awakeness. It's in that potential that each one of us have, every person in this room, that we have the potential to wake up completely. Each one of us has, in the terms of probably our more Mahayana friends, we have Buddha nature inside of us, part of the nature of our mind. And there are many, many wonderful descriptions in the suttas of the nature of the mind as being clear and luminous and radiant, which you're probably a little doubtful about right now. You know, I don't imagine too many. I haven't heard anybody come into an interview today to say, my mind is clear and luminous and radiant. So maybe, maybe you don't, you, all the, those folks went to Bob probably and <clears throat> told him about it. So you probably don't look, you know, feel much like a Buddha. And, but what I can tell you is, you, you know, often you look like 38 little Buddhas all scattered around the room as you sit. So what is this? You know, what is this Buddha nature stuff, this awake stuff? It's not on the 32 parts of the body, you know. There's no place anywhere on the list where it says, you know, the, the awakeness factor in your body. It's not visible like head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, any of those things. And it's often not findable in the mind. It's the mind is crazed and obsessed and compulsive. And whatever is awake and luminous and radiant doesn't seem to be readily available. So what we might consider tonight, that just as my piece of land was filled with this, these invasive plants, the mind and the heart are also often obscured. So, is it everybody in here gardened a little bit? You know, a house plant or tomato plant or, you know, a little bit of border along your yard or whatever. Probably most people have. And many people just love to garden. You know, they can, I know a number of friends who think there's just nothing more blissful than to spend an afternoon pulling weeds in their garden, you know, taking care of some little piece of land, you know, pulling the weeds and, and digging and tying plants up and moving them around from there to here and bringing in some newcomers and planting them. I've spent entire days with that ginger and been really, really happy on this piece of Hawaiian land. There's much that's much more blissful than that. Maybe a few things, but not too much. And you know what? In my years of gardening, both here and there, I have never once thought to criticize the land for having weeds. Have you ever criticized your land for having weeds? No, we don't usually do that. It's just one of those things. I have strong opinions about people who bring in invasive species. That I have some opinions about. And I can be quite critical and judgmental. But not about the land itself. So if your land has weeds, you go to work, right? You kind of roll up your sleeves and you get your tools and 
you go out and you start pulling weeds. So you could consider the mind and the heart in the same way. Often, you know, the mind and the heart are just filled with weeds and brambles of different sorts. And in fact, we even know what kinds of things are likely to do that. But the meditator, you, yogis, students, come into interview after interview, overcome with guilt and shame because they have difficulties, because you have difficulties. One of the most common things I hear sometimes is, maybe I should go home. I don't think I'm doing this right. So it's time for me to go home. And it's the wandering mind, it's the fear, it's the fantasies, it's the endless judgment and criticism. There's some way in which the mind is really, really difficult. Therefore, you are not a good student. Therefore, you should go home. Actually, what I always say is, this is great. This is the first, one of the first major insights, is to see how difficult the mind is. It's really important to be able to see that. It does not mean that you're a bad student. It actually means you're seeing something which presumably is what you came here to do. So last night, Bob mentioned the hindrances, the five hindrances. And these are some of the known weeds, if you will, that can create problems in our practice. So these are greed and hatred and delusion. Um, Greed and hatred in the hindrance list and then sloth and torpor, which is sleepiness. I like the sloth and torpor term better, though. Restlessness and doubt. So these are the hindrances. We also sometimes talk about the obscurations, which are pretty much the same list. Greed and hatred again. And then delusion, which kind of covers restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. And I also often think, when I think of difficulties in the mind, You can go in the psychological direction and think about resistance because we all, probably all of you, have known some level of resistance about your practice, that place where you don't want to do it. You know, you don't want to go to the sit. You don't want to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. You don't want to listen to a Dharma talk. You don't want to go to Qigong. You could care less about the 32 parts of the body. You just don't want to. And it's just resistance. And many of you, those of you who have been on endless numbers of retreats, have heard endless talks about the hindrances because we always talk about it. And certainly all of us who have been in therapy, which is probably most of us, and if we, you know, if you're not in it right now, you're probably doing it for somebody else. So we're pretty familiar also with the term resistance. But all of these things, they're like dandelions, you know, or they're like my ginger. They're deeply rooted in the mind and the heart. They're conditioned by years and years and years of habit. And they don't come up very easily. It's really hard to root them out. So with our land, almost exactly seven years ago, actually this month, we began. So one afternoon I decided I wanted to see what would happen if I started to chop down the ginger. So I got my biggest, sharpest knife out of my kitchen and I went out into my little piece of 
land and I began to cut it down. Now ginger has a stalk that's about this thick, you know, maybe an inch thick, and it's kind of juicy and it's really easy to cut, so it's very satisfying. It's like a whap, falls over. You know. So that, you know, I got a little macho about it and I began to chop and chop and chop and it was astounding because as I chopped, all these things began to emerge. Some of them were great big tree ferns, you know, as tall as the ginger. And maybe I'd been able to see their tops up above, but I hadn't seen anything else. And I'd chop all the ginger, and there'd be this beautiful tree fern just standing there. And whole bunches of littler ferns, a lovely plant that grows there that's a a relative of an African violet, except it stands about five feet tall. And lots of little mosses and little teeny ferns that were, you know, they're just an inch or two big. And it was like this wonderland of things that were trying to survive in under the ginger. So I continued for several days that trip, got uh, my husband and some friends who were with us to help now and then. And when we left, the place was a mess. There was downed ginger everywhere. Because one of the things in the permaculture world is that you leave it in order to nourish the land, to let it decay, and then it will help other things grow. And of course there were large areas where I hadn't even begun, because I didn't have that much time to put into it. So when I came back a few months later, you know, the, the, the ginger I hadn't touched was still happily cooking along, And where I had cut, there was ginger that had come back, although it wasn't quite so big. So this time, that particular trip, I was on retreat for several weeks, and my work meditation was chopping ginger. So I would go out every day for about an hour in the afternoon and chop some more. Cleared more, removed more new growth, and then, you know, a month or two later, three months later, four months later, whatever it was, we went back again and The ginger had come back again, and we did it again, but it wasn't so big. So it's just this way with the mind and the heart. It's actually exactly the same. And if you've heard a lot of talks about the hindrances and you've been to retreats, you're very familiar with this scenario. It's not tidy. It's kind of a messy business that's trying to weed them out, and they come back. I don't know anybody who never has any hindrances because the only mind that is completely free from hindrances is either the mind of a Buddha, a fully enlightened being, or, you know, a mind that is completely concentrated for a period of time. But everything that you do, you know, the pieces that you leave behind, as it were, it nourishes the garden of your practice. It's actually good to keep doing this. And, you know, these, these hindrances, they're on the list of the things that you see. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Bob referred to it this, this morning, I think, that there's a list that has the five hindrances and the four noble truths and the seven factors of enlightenment, like that. And so this, these are some of the things that you come to see when you practice. And one of the things that you actually come to see are these hindrances. So they keep us from being fully and completely and deeply present. Greed, wanting, the wanting mind, hatred or aversion, the not wanting mind, I don't want this, 
restlessness, that place that where it's really hard to sit still and the mind is constantly moving around. Sloth and torpor, sleepiness, we've talked about that a lot in here, and doubt. And the, the image that is given in the text that is probably most familiar to, to us and um, to many of us, and I find it easiest to work with, is the image of a, a forest pool, a clear pool. And so when the mind is awake, the pool is very, very clear. When it is filled with greed, with wanting, it's like somebody has dumped dye in the pool. And everything that you see is seen through the filter of that wanting. And you know this. You know this place. We all know it. That place when you want something and it just doesn't, it's always there. You know, you're just coloring everything. And aversion it's like the pond or the pool is boiling and bubbling. And so the anger and the upset creates all this bubble, like a pot of boiling water, and you can't see clearly through that water. And restlessness is like wind blowing over the surface and, and keeping it so it, you never get below the surface with restlessness. And sloth and torpor is like slime and algae filling the pool. So it's gooey and slimy and kind of yucky. And then mud is when the pool, uh, mud, doubt is when the pool begins to dry up and you get mud. So there's not enough water. So we, you all know these places, right? Yeah? Everybody had a taste of something, maybe two or three. And sometimes, you know, one form arrives. You have the hindrance of the day or the retreat. And sometimes you get, it seems like, all the dandelions on the planet. They all come at once. And you have what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack. You know, all of them. So what to do? So you remember my house sitter, you know, she liked that ginger. She thought it was great to have it screening. She was comfortable with it. It was kind of a defense against the world. And um, she, didn't, she was really upset with us when we began to take it out. And we're that way, aren't we, with our hindrances sometimes. We're pretty comfortable with them. We're used to them. They're known patterns of the mind and the heart. And often they have their roots in some defensive pattern or other. And we have some sense even that they protect us. But with my garden, you know, I trusted my friend who said, this isn't what the native forest is like. You know, there's some beautiful stuff under there. And I got really interested in what is the true nature of my land? What is the true nature of our land? What would be there if it were uncovered? And the same thing is true for the heart and mind. We're taught, the Buddha says, it's possible to wake up. He says really clearly, I wouldn't tell you to do this if it were not possible. He wasn't, he was an enormously compassionate being. He wouldn't just say, try it knowing that we couldn't do it. And there's wonderful stories in the sutta. One of my favorites is of a a monk who was a little slow. He was a little mentally slow. He had a hard time even getting permission to be a monk. And so, because he wasn't so bright, they set him to work sweeping the monastery. And you know how it is. All of us have cleaned houses. He'd sweep. It's just like weeding. He'd sweep. (sighs) 
And then two days later, the dust would be back, and he'd sweep, and then it would be back, and then he would sweep, and then it would be back. And as he kept this practice going of sweeping and cleansing and purifying, gradually, 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 he began to understand things about his mind and his heart. And it's said that he became a fully enlightened being, which is, I have no idea, but it's a really good story, and I like it. Because it points to the fact that everyone, everyone sitting here has the potential to wake up. So a question for you is, do you trust that? Do you trust that, that you actually could wake up? It takes some faith. It takes some confidence. It takes some trust to follow whatever it was that inspired you to be here, to to see if you can indeed wake up. But we all get glimpses. You know, we get glimpses. Probably already you've had some glimpses. A little piece of a set, maybe. Or maybe all of a set that was quieter. A couple of people today in interviews talked about how helpful it was to have the qigong and then to sit and how quiet and spacious the mind seemed to be. So you go, oh, look at that. The mind can do that. You know, or sometimes it happens other places, you know, a little, you're just sitting out in the sun and everything all of a sudden gets really quiet. Whoa, this isn't the mind that I'm used to, you know, it's different. And these glimpses inspire us, you know, what would it be then to clear these hindrances away, show that the mind has a better chance of being clear and seeing clearly. So first... You have to admit that the hindrance is there. You have to see it. You have to be mindful of it. It's actually one of the most important steps in this process is mindfulness of the hindrance itself. So when you realize you are caught in greed or aversion or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, that's very important to go, oh, This is the wanting mind. Wow. To really get interested and be mindful. What is the wanting mind like? Here's a reading from a French monk of the very early, late 17th, early 18th century. His name was Francois Fenelon. He says, as the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. (sighs) We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. He had a difficult mind. We never could have believed that we harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So that's really pointing to how important 
that first step is of just seeing what is happening. And for each of these hindrances, there are also known antidotes. There are ways to work with the mind and the heart to train it so that the hindrances will diminish. So there's actually activity involved in this. There's, there's a way in which what you're doing on the cushion is a training for your heart and mind. And just as if you were going to the gym to train for a marathon or some big physical effort, it takes a lot of intention and it takes a lot of work. It's just not easy what we're doing, like I said at the beginning. So for the wanting mind, for the greed, that place where the mind is always leaning forward, oh, lunch. If we could only get to lunch, everything will be perfect. There will be pizza and delicious salad and... You know, I know they'll put out some special treat. And the mind just starts leaning out about lunch. But what happens? What happens? For one thing, maybe you don't get pizza. But even though it's not pizza, it's usually beautiful and quite yummy. And then all of a sudden it's 1.15 or 1.30. And where's lunch? Gone. Over. Finished. Impermanent like everything else. You live for that moment with your sweetie when you are going to have wonderful sex. You know it's going to be fabulous beyond all your dreams. It will be the answer to everything you ever wanted. And what happens? It might even be wonderful. But it's over. And it's impermanent. And not only that, what's going to happen to your sweetie? This is where it gets really interesting. It's a little like what Bob was talking about with the 32 parts. Your sweetie is going to get old and gray and wrinkled and saggy and die. What? And dye their hair pink. Right, well, you know, you have to do what we can. (laughs) So... Contemplating impermanence is actually an antidote to that wanting, to remembering that even if you get it, it's not going to last. It doesn't mean that any of those things are bad. Please don't take what I'm saying that way. It's just to remember that when the mind is consumed with the wanting instead of being here, it's not helpful and it won't, whatever it is that it's wanting isn't going to last. With Aversion, the antidote is loving-kindness practice and the attitude of loving-kindness. And we'll actually be doing some loving-kindness practice in the late sit tonight. We're going to begin a little bit of that training. So really teaching the mind to go in the direction of goodwill and friendliness towards all of our experience and ultimately towards all beings. Restlessness, so the good and bad news about restlessness is the antidote to restlessness is concentration. So if you find that you're restless, the best thing to do is to sit as still as possible and to really do everything you can to focus and concentrate the mind. It's a very good place to go back to mindfulness of breathing. It can even be a good place to count breaths in, out, one, 
in, out, two. If you make it to 10, which not everybody does very often, then you go back and do it all over again, in, out, one, in, out, two. And it's pretty interesting to see that often at three or four you fall off and then you have to go back. But kind of pushing on concentration, which will feel really uncomfortable to the restless mind and body, is actually the antidote to restlessness. And it will, ultimately, um, you will actually settle. This takes a bit of work. All of this takes work. It's like weeding. It's like gardening. Sloth and torpor, we've already talked about a number of times, the way to bring your energy up. You know, standing, keeping your eyes open, walking briskly before you come in, splashing water on your face, they say pulling your earlobes, all of that kind of thing. And then for doubt, if, if doubt really strikes here, um, the people to talk to are us, either Bob or me or Marcy, and get some support. And out there in the world, your other spiritual friends, books, tapes, that kind of thing. It's in a way, if you think of that muddy pool, then you have to bring some water into the pool to, to um, clarify it a bit. So the different weeds require different techniques. This is just a real quick little survey to give you some hints. But what we know is they all require repeated effort. And, you know, even weeding can get tiring and it can feel a little like been there and done that and, oh, you know, what can I do? So in the gardening world, you know, there are ways to take care of your land so that the weeds don't invade so much, right? You can mulch, you can be careful about what you plant, right amount of shade and sun and all that kind of thing. And with the mind, actually... Again, just as in the specific hindrance of restlessness, concentration is what will help with the hindrances. It's why we really encourage you to keep coming back and to stay with whatever the object of your practice is, the breath, the body sensation, your bone marrow, whatever we're working on. Stay right there. And when you wander off, train yourself to come back. Because as the mind learns to stay present, to be with just the breath, with just the body, that will counter the hindrances. And it's, you'll begin to see, oh, as, I, as you get more concentrated, and you may not believe this, but you are getting more concentrated. Even at the end of two days of retreat, the mind has begun to settle. And by the end of three or four days, it will really begin to be quite settled. And so if you were to get fully concentrated, there won't be any hindrances. No greed, no hatred, no restlessness, no sleepiness, no doubt. And there may be moments like that for you. You know, that if you catch one, you go, oh, look at that, no hindrances. Just notice it because it's a way to begin to appreciate the, the concentrated mind. So there's some things that you can do to help support the concentration of your mind. And there's lots, I just want to say, there's lots of controversy about concentration and the Vipassana Sea and about what exactly goes where and how important is it. And, you know, is it if you pick up the current issue of the inquiring mind, you'll notice that there's people who think, Certain states are required for enlightenment and other people don't think that. 
So we're not going there tonight. What we do know is that it's enormously helpful. It's very, very useful in life and in meditation to be able to concentrate your mind. So applied and sustained thought, rapture and happiness and one-pointedness of mind are all considered to be helpful in um, training the mind so that the hindrances are countered. So applied thought is when you can take your attention to whatever the object is, let's say the breath, and to target it correctly. You know, you're right there with the breath. You're not, you know how it is, it's kind of easy to have the breath. You're sort of aware of it over here somewhere in the corner of your awareness. But this means you're right there. You're right on it. You know exactly the sensation of the breath wherever you're following it. And when you have that kind of precision and exactness, it brings up some energy. It actually counters um, sloth and torpor. And, and it, it brings um, you know, that, that preciseness to your practice. Sustained thought, you know, where you can then stay with the breath. Uses. Joanna Macy talks about sustaining the gaze. I think it's a wonderful phrase where you can place your attention on whatever it is, the breath, the body, your grief, and you can just keep it there. It doesn't wander off to rest with one thing. And you really examine and experience the object. And that actually begins to counter doubt when you are able to penetrate your experience that way. Rapture and happiness um, are very, very helpful. I mentioned that the other day in here. There's such useful factors in our practice. And so that place where um, one of the images that's given is of being in a desert and rapture is that moment when you see that there's water. There's really water. There's an actual oasis out there. And happiness is when you actually get to drink the water and pour it over your head and soak yourself completely and and get all wet. And these will counter aversion and they also counter restlessness. So again, while you're pushing there with your restlessness, developing your concentration, you know, any level of happiness that you can bring to it about your practice will also help you to settle. So restlessness can be a big thing in, in our practice in these early days and in early retreats. So remembering that there's some tools that you have to counter it are really helpful. And one-pointedness, that place where you're just with whatever the one thing, then there isn't any wanting. It counters wanting. So that developing the, the willingness to be just with the breath, then the mind isn't leaning out to lunch or qigong or your nap or whatever else you might want to do. So as you do this, you're protecting your heart and your mind. You're actually nourishing it and deepening your practice just in the same way that the gardener um, protects his or her land. So I just want to say a little bit about greed and hatred and delusion, which is a different list but obviously related because it's got the same factors in it. And why I want to do this is because 
It's not really good news. Each one of you is in Buddhist typology, either a greed type or an aversion type or a deluded type. So here's the test. This is like, you know, are you introverted, extroverted, or are you a nine or a seven on the Enneagram or whatever. So there's, you know, there's always tests for these things. So here's the test. You walk into a room, maybe this hall. And so the greed person looks around and goes, oh my goodness, look at those beautiful tankas hanging on the wall and those statues and the flower arrangements. They are fabulous. I want them. Where can I find a tanka just like that? And it gets really busy figuring out about how you can get whatever it is that you want in that room. Some of you might recognize the syndrome. And if it's your first response, oh, I like it, I want it, where do I get it? To some, many situations, you're probably a greed type. On the other hand, you might walk in here and go, oh, no, wood floors for a meditation hall, carpeting would have been so much better. And the colors of the cushions, excuse me, brown, uh, you know, what were they thinking? And really, you know, those brown flowers, things, whatever they are in the altar, you know, why couldn't they have had real flowers? I mean, what are they thinking? So then, if that sounds like I know that one, I do. Because that's the aversive mind. And so you, the aversive mind tends to have lots of judgment and criticism. And that's your sort of knee-jerk response. And if you walk in here, and then you walk out and someone says, well, what do you think of the Spirit Rock Meditation Hall? And you said, well, huh. Hmm. You know, I can't really say very much about the Spirit Rock Meditation Hall. You're probably a deluded type because you just don't notice things. <laughs> now, why this is important is that if you know that you are prone to greed, it means your meditation garden, if you will, it's going to be more prone to the hindrance of greed, right? And if you know that you are an aversive type, then you're more likely to have aversion coming in. And if you know that you're deluded, you may get more caught with sleepiness or restlessness or doubt. So we all have all three. Please don't think that you can just get away with one of them, just as we all have all of the hindrances. But it can be really, really helpful to be alert for the things that you are more likely to have. The definition of a fully enlightened being, one of them anyway, one I actually quite like, is that is a person who has absolutely no greed, no hatred, and no delusion in their mind, ever. Now, everybody's mind has moments when there's no greed and no hatred and delusion. So it's really important to begin to notice when that happens for you because then you can begin to string those moments together, those moments of a clear and awake mind so that more and more it begins to happen. So my little piece of land has taken seven years and lots of chopping, gradually expanding that area where we were clearing and 
Each time it was messy when I laughed, but then it was better. And each time when you go on retreat, you know, it's sometimes kind of messy, but each time it's usually a little bit better. And gradually the ginger began to give up. My friend was right. It actually did give up, and the corms, the roots of the ginger, just weren't getting enough nourishment to continue. So sitting after sitting, retreat after retreat, you chop at your hindrances, really, and you clear away your obscurations. And you do maybe lots of loving-kindness practice for your angry or fearful heart and lots of thinking about impermanence and lots of standing and sitting on the edge of wells or 5,000-foot cliffs or whatever, lots of concentration, lots of input from spiritual friends. And what begins to happen is that the hindrances and the conditions that create the hindrances are not being fed. And so those conditions aren't there and those states will arise less frequently. The mind will begin to settle and begin to clear. Ajahn Chah said this. He said, your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So this is the true nature of the mind and the heart, this kind of stillness and clarity. The true nature of my Hawaii land was its native forest, the lovely endemic and native species. And, you know, vigilance is still required. I don't have to chop so much anymore, hardly at all. But I have to keep, you know, tending to it so that the invasive things don't come back. The true nature of the mind is, indeed, shining and radiant and without hindrances and without hatred and delusion and greed. It's really important as you do this to remember it's not going to be perfect right away. It probably isn't going to be perfect this lifetime for most of us. My friend Sylvia Burstein likes to say, you know, there's in Buddhist teaching, there's a teaching called the Four Noble Truths, and the third of those truths is there can be a complete ending of suffering. And she says, well, there's a third and a half noble truth. Maybe not a complete ending, but at least less. And I think that's a wonderful teaching. And so maybe your mind will be more radiant and maybe there will be less aversion or less restlessness. And so we keep doing the work even though it won't be perfect. Dana Falds, who's a yoga teacher at Kripalu, says, now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. And here's the really important line. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. It's not a problem that you have hindrances. It's not a problem that you have to weed your garden. 
It's a great pleasure to root around in the earth of this dear planet of ours. And it's a great pleasure to practice. And you can let it be a pleasure even when it's difficult. So all you really have to do is get to work and pull the weeds. So here's a couple of final poems for you. One is Countering Perfection. It's called The Best Spiritual Practice. Best spiritual practice is to drop the word best, the word spiritual, and the word practice. Is to re-enter your own garden, find each flower turned to the light. And Izumi Shikibu says, As I dig for wild orchids in the autumn fields, it is the deeply bedded root that I desire, not the flower. So I hope you will enjoy gardening in your heart and mind. And let's sit and breathe together. Stay exactly where you are. You do not need to get in any special posture to breathe. Let's just breathe. Your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So thank you so very much for listening. And we now have about 40 minutes for walking. And then at the nine o'clock set, there'll be some guided loving kindness practice to end our day with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.